0: Welcome to Bibliophiles, a production of the Center for Lit Podcast Network. In today's episode, the Center for Lit team continues its quest to discover the great ideas in books of every description, ancient classics to new bestsellers, epic poems to bedtime stories. We're glad you came along. We hope you find this discussion as provocative and inspiring as the books themselves. Want to join the great conversation? Stay tuned. You've come to the right place. Well, welcome back to Bibliophiles, everyone. Adam Andrews with you once again at the head of the Center for Lit crew, joined by the entire crew today. My wife, Missy. Hi. My daughter, Megan.
1: Hello.
0: My daughter-in-law, Emily. Hi. And my son, Ian. Hey. How you guys doing today? Anything to report for the good of the order before we start? Nah.
2: (laughs) Really? You guys are doing nothing at all? I don't believe you. Well... Megan baked pumpkin muffins and I ate
0: like 13 of them. So
3: I I think I'm, I think I'm slowly becoming a pumpkin muffin. So I am a pumpkin muffin
0: and not afraid to admit it to the entire bibliophiles listenership. (laughs) I'm proud of you girls.
3: I'm sure. I'm sure there are others out there who know exactly what we're talking about. Tis the season to become a pumpkin. muffin.
0: (laughs) Uh, That's great. Well, I'm sure you won't mind if I jump right ahead to the subject at hand, will you? Nah.
2: Wow, so eager.
0: Yes. Oh my goodness, yes. Do you know why? It's because today, it's a What Are We Reading episode. The occasional periodic version of Bibliophiles where we ask one of the Santa for Lit crew what book they've just finished and what they thought of it. And today, on the What Are We Reading hot seat, is my wife, Missy. Missy, you have been reading assiduously some classic of English literature and have just finished. Tell me what it is.
1: Okay, so I've been reading a lot of things, but the thing that I decided to share with you is To the Lighthouse by Virginia Woolf.
0: To the Lighthouse by Virginia Woolf.
1: Yeah, it's it's actually my first experience with Virginia Woolf. She's been on my need to read list for a really long time, and I finally got around to it.
0: And Virginia Woolf is, should be on everyone's need to read list, I've heard, although I will admit to the entire Bibliophiles listenership that I've never read anything by Virginia Woolf.
2: <laughs> Are you afraid of her, though? Afraid of her?
0: Listen, who's afraid of Virginia Woolf?
3: <laughs> I see what you there did there. Is. I see where you were going with that.
0: I don't know awesome. oh, what, what I miss.
3: Who's afraid of Virginia Woolf? And we could go on. Oh, dang.
0: <laughs> it. So here's the thing. I saw the uptake today. <laughs> um, I actually, until very recently, knew Virginia Woolf as a name in a list of famous authors and couldn't have placed her in a, a time period or a literary movement, and I'm assuming that I'm not alone in that, although perhaps I am, but but just in case I'm not alone in that um, in that gentle ignorance, would you care to enlighten <laughs> us, <laughs> Missy, about when this novel was written, uh, kind of the history surrounding it, what period it comes from, that sort of thing? Give us sort of a little context of To the Lighthouse.
1: Yeah, sure. Um, so Virginia Woolf was a modernist author, and she published To the Lighthouse in 1927, so just after World War One. And anybody who knows anything about the period knows that this was a time when everyone was sort of reeling from the fragmentation that the war had created. There was hardly a family at the time who hadn't lost at least one person to the war. Right. Um, I, I read that by some estimates, over 40 million people died in, com- in the conflicts. So a lot of people were questioning the reality of a good and loving God who sovereignly orders the world after the counsel of his will. And this comes through in all of the novels of Mm. the period. Um, When you read the modernists, you see them expressing brokenness and fragmentation. And specifically, um, that comes through often in a fragmented narrative. And that's certainly the case with this particular story. Um, Artistically, there's this push toward realism and subjective experience because on the whole, a lot of people were kind of jettisoning the idea of objective reality.
0: And so th- this is written when, again? What's the publication date?
1: 1927.
0: 27. So after World War One. Yep.
1: Before World War Two. Before World War II. Yep.
0: Okay. So you mentioned fragmentation uh, in terms of the kind of the modernist outlook, the modernist worldview. Would that be a good term to characterize the narrative style of To the Lighthouse in particular and maybe Virginia Woolf generally? How would you care? I mean, maybe the better way to ask questions, how would you characterize what sort of novel this is in terms of style?
1: Yeah, that's a good question. Um, Her husband, who is also an author and a political theorist, considered the novel a psychological poem. And those are his words, not mine. And um, it is really poetic in its language. It's use of the language, um, very figurative use of the language. Um, But yes, it is stream of consciousness narration. She uses free indirect discourse which is also known as free indirect style, and some of you probably know it as um, a kind of narrative style that was pioneered, I think, by Jane Austen about a hundred years before Virginia Woolf. It allows the the narrator to kind of sidle up to a character and assume their voice. Which makes um, their interior thoughts available to the reader right alongside all of their public remarks and their behavior.
0: Is the idea though that in this kind of uh, narration, the author does it with more than one character? Yes, so you're jumping around inside the heads. Yes, of so there's people? This,
1: this constantly oh. shifting narrative perspective, which makes it kind of challenging to read, and uh, you know, in a, in addition, it fragments the narrative a little bit because everybody's seeing things from a slightly different perspective. Um, it does let her develop characters pretty readily and also to explore the relationship of perception and um, reality, mm. even as she explores the nature of a human being and the human psyche. Um, how we how we perceive one another is writ large over the course of the novel. Does it read like a James Joyce novel with
3: like actual fragmentation in like sentence structure? Is no. It no. That much a study of the psyche, like a crazy person's talking. <laughs> no, what what it's kind not of like,
1: psyche. is it a study. It's not what what kind of like psyche. Are we in here? <laughs> it's like not like when you read um, the first couple of pages of *The Sound and the Fury* by Faulkner or anything like that. Right. Yeah. It, it reads very lyrically, but um, there's this. There, it reads with these. Um, oh, kind of like vignettes. I, that's not even the right word. Um, moments. There are these these seemingly unconnected, unconnected, Inconnected? seemingly unconnected, disconnected, disconnected. Thank you. Seemingly disconnected moments and scenes, um, little little fragments of daily life that seem pretty mundane hmm. and that don't seem to be cohesive. As a matter of fact, so there's not really a running plot. No, there's not much of a plot here. The most that you can really um, find in terms of a plot is um, so the story takes place on the Isle of Skye in the Hebrides, off of coastal Scotland, in this summer house. But more importantly, within within a, within a family. And they've invited members um, members of their close community and friends of their children. Um, the husband is a professor at a university, and he's invited some of his students. So it's this community setting, right? But primarily, the Ramsey family is the, the primary setting. And the work spans about 10 years total, beginning, immediately preceding World War I, and the end of the novel uh, immediately following the time that immediately follows the war.
0: Oh, I didn't know that.
1: Yeah. So the novel um, bookends the war mm-hmm. and it divides neatly into three parts that mirror that passage of time. Uh, the first one is called The Window and it concerns itself with the internal workings of the human psyche, like what we were talking about through that indirect narrations, uh, that that non-direct narrative style. And the second, Time Passes, which kind of shifts away from humanity in order to consider nature, the passage of time, things like that. And then the third, part three, is called The Lighthouse from which she derives her, her title. And it considers the possibility, I believe, of achieving an objective narrative. And this seems to be the, the larger purpose of the novel as a whole. But the storyline just to get back to that question, is there a storyline? Yeah, but it's a very simple storyline. You've got this this Ramsey family and their guests occupying this coastal summer house, and their youngest son, they've got a bajillion kids, their youngest son, James, <laughs> wants to take this trip out to the lighthouse, which he can see from the house. And his mother um, is kind of playing along. She's entertained the possibility with him. And his father comes in and rains on their parade with This pessimistic realism. It's going to rain. It won't be possible. Yeah, the trip won't be made. And incidentally, the trip is not made, at least not at that point. But instead, Mrs. Ramsey, the mother, who is sort of this image of femininity and motherhood and domesticity, she attempts to kind of unify the family and bring them together with their guests in these moments of beauty and create joy for them, all by kind of. An effort of her will. Hmm. And these little moments shine out, um, these moments of beauty. For example, one happens over this artistically arranged bowl of fruit in the middle of this luxurious dinner party. But even even at the beginning of the dinner party, people are late, people aren't getting along, some people are sitting silent, um, sulking because they're not included or they don't belong or something like that. And she has the, the job, the task of trying to bring them all together, make them all feel a part. And for a moment, everybody does. Everybody's present. Everybody feels apart. The sun has gone down and Um, So the candles are lit and they're kind of reflected in the windows and everything's dark around them, but they're lit from inside. And this bowl of fruit that her daughter has arranged in the middle of the table becomes kind of a focal point for her. And she looks at it and it's um, like soothing her soul. It's so pleasing to her. And she catches the eye of uh, another person who's present, who's a poet. And he's also looking at this bowl of fruit and they share this moment over this bowl of fruit, <laughs> it sounds very strange, but um, you can see her kind of addressing the subject of beauty and art and its effects on on human beings, but more specifically, the way that it um, brings people together in an intimate moment.
0: So, so Megan, you've you have read this particular novel, have you not?
1: I have. Yeah, it, I read it in college, so it's
3: been a couple years, but. Fairly so, recently.
0: So this summary of part one, does that jive with your remembrance of the story? Because one of the things that mom said is that there's this issue of fragmentation. There's this issue of a strange narrative style. I get the sense from having not, from not being an expert on Virginia Woolf or having read this novel that it might be really hard to follow slash remember. <laughs>
3: That's an excellent question, Dad. I'm glad you brought that up. It's a little <laughs> bit like giving me a paper cut and pouring lemon juice in it. <laughs> the thing is... I paid. I paid attention in college. I did, and I was in that class, and I read that <laughs> book closely. And even so, I have very little memory of a of a linear plot. Well, that's because I there really I remember wasn't the one. main. Well, that's comforting to hear. Yes, because I got nothing. If you if you put a gun to my head, I couldn't tell you what the linear plot of that book was. But
1: <laughs> well, it's simple. It's in in as oh, much oh, as it oh, exists. Hang on, hang on. Let her hey, finish.
3: She, she didn't sides. say she
0: had a gun to her head. <laughs> no
3: at this moment <laughs> thank god um no but i do remember a little bit of what mom's talking about the the character qualities particularly of mrs ramsey are striking and they they stay with me she's a very powerful uh, very beautiful character mm-hmm. and she's compelling enough that when you think of to the lighthouse you think of mrs ramsey immediately
1: mm-hmm.
3: as um she is she's a powerful figure creating connections in a story that that doesn't hold together well on its own She's the thing that makes it hold together. And I think that thematically, that might be really important.
2: So well, that's what I remember. I was going to, so I haven't read it at all. I, I'm coming in just with what you guys have told me. But yeah, do you think that in her role as representing this domesticity and femininity and kind of this image of home that she is representing a bygone era? oh yes during world war one a passing kind of um Mm -hmm. foundation or grounded rootedness that has gone away
3: i think that would make sense wouldn't it mom because doesn't she die before the end of the novel and you feel her absence keenly she's not a, a present figure she's you actually remember her by the end of the book as kind of a a
1: fragment of the past, she's kind of the dominant figure throughout the entire story, but
0: it but just as dominant in her passing away. yes,
1: she remains right? dominant. Um, but she remains dominant in the minds of the people that knew her and loved her and admired her. It's because she performed a particular kind of function for them, I think. Um, her personality shone out, was lively, she was lovely, everyone wanted to be near her, some wanted to actually be her. As a matter of fact, the the second most important personality in the story, I think, is this, um, this artist, this younger artist, Lily Briscoe is her name, and she studies Mrs. Ramsey from the beginning of the novel to the end. Um, and she, she is, if there's anything that makes this narrative cohesive, it's her, Um, her thoughts about Mrs. Ramsey, because we really do experience and view Mrs. Ramsey predominantly through her eyes. Now remember, there's the shifting narrative. So we see her through other people's eyes as well. So we get a very well-rounded concept of Mrs. Ramsey. And the author sidles up next to Mrs. Ramsey and assumes her voice. So we get to see what's going on inside of her as well as what other people think about her. So Mrs. Ramsey is certainly writ large over the narrative as a whole. And I'm not surprised, Megan, that she's what you remember Mm. from the story. But this Lily Briscoe is also a really significant character, really interesting character, because... Well, I, I remember her too, just in defense of, <laughs> of my own She's kind of mousy, right? Is that right? Well, <laughs> she sees herself as kind of mousy. Um, Mrs. <laughs> Ramsey thinks she's a bit mousy too. But what she really is, is kind of a solitary artist type. Mm-hmm. And she's, she's a painter. And in the first book... When you first meet her, she's trying to paint a scene that would encompass what she is experiencing at the summer house with the Ramsey family. And so Mrs. Ramsey is central in her experience, and Mrs. Ramsey is um, somehow needing to be central in the portrait. But she makes her a smudge in the portrait. And someone looking on looks and says, What? You've reduced um, Mrs. Ramsey reading to her son on the porch as a smudge. How does that work? It's as if it were demeaning in some way. And she says, no, 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 that's not demeaning. That's necessary for balance over here. And there's got to be light and dark. And she's, she begins to talk about what she's trying to do with this painting. But by the end of book one, she's kind of abandoned all hope of her painting. She's still thinking about, how can I make this right? Because the painting's not coming together. It's fragmented. The pieces don't fit. Um, there's nothing that unifies to bring some sort of um, narrative order mm. to the the picture that she's drawing, to the to the painting that she's creating, and then she leaves, and time passes as that middle section, um, that second, that part two of the novel suggests. And so during that time, you see this empty house and all that's happening in the house in the absence of its inhabitants. And time is sort of taking over the house, and things are starting to fall apart. Books are starting to mold. Um, Animals and critters are starting to come in and make their house there. And in the process of getting all of this just through a third-person narration... There are these little parenthetical notes that let us know what's happening with the family, and we learn that Mrs. Ramsey dies unexpectedly one night, but we learn it in a parenthetical bracket
0: hmm.
1: as though it were sort of um, beside the point, point. and then more information about what time is doing and what nature is doing. And then we get another parenthetical bracket that tells us that her daughter, Prue, gets married And then another parenthetical bracket that tells us very shortly after that she dies in childbirth just a year after she's married. And then another parenthetical bracket that says that her son Andrew dies in in World War I. And these little brackets, I think, are are significant um, because they're asides. They're one sentence asides, just direct statements of fact. And then we go back to the narrative of time. Until finally in, the, in book three, the family comes back and Lily Briscoe comes back with them. And she's pondering the absence of Mrs. Ramsey. And we get to see through her eyes um, what has happened to the family and the place without her. And she decides in trying to, to make sense of um, the meaning of Mrs. Ramsey's life and death to pull out her painting and try to finish it. She remembers she was trying to work this painting up and she thinks she might be able to figure it out on canvas. So all of part three, that's what she's doing. That's what
0: she, we have for plot. That's what we three. have for
1: plot. In part three, she's just trying to fix this painting, to figure out a way to draw it all together into a cohesive whole, into a, a cohesive narrative. She's trying to make, she's trying to find some sort of objective truth or reality in Missus Ramsey's life and death.
0: Do you guys know they tried to make a movie out of this?
1: I haven't watched it yet. <laughs> they did. But I doubt it. Nobody... I mean, I you know who would do it. Terrence Malick could probably do a good. Kenneth
0: job Branagh you. was in it.
1: Yeah, he was. What? Really? Yeah, yeah. I want to see it. But I so it wasn't for like TV a 1970s movie. art film Early or something 90s. like this. Oh, I'm sure 89. it was an art film. I'm sure it was an art film, and it's I'm like sure Enchanted April. Most people probably, hey, don't don't you rain on Enchanted April? I, like I love that. Enchanted I April.
3: I do too, but well, you have poop? to admit it is an art film. There it are is a lot of scenes of like geckos running over someone's face. It was <laughs> weird. <laughs>
1: And so hands holding on to like seaweed and stuff. <laughs> yeah, it's very odd. Beautiful, but weird. True, but that is, it is a little weird. Yeah, yeah. I would imagine. The lighthouse is that on paper. It probably is because there just isn't much of a narrative. But in part three, while Lily Briscoe is doing this at home, Mr. Ramsey demands that two of his children, James and another one of his daughters, Cam, accompany him to the lighthouse. So we get this. Are we going to the lighthouse? In the beginning, you know, the story question was Will James get to go to the lighthouse? Answer no. Answer? negative. <laughs> but there was this less obvious story question beneath it, right? Will Mrs. Ramsey succeed in keeping out the encroaching roar of the sea and everything that it portends? Will she establish order and beauty before encroaching chaos and time? You know, this is kind of woven into the fabric, the the warp and the woof of the narrative. The Virginia to woof? The ex- yeah, the, woo, the woof <laughs> of the narrative. Oh, yeah, I see what you did there. Virginia woof. <laughs> <laughs> But that you know, was, then when was. they come back together, there's, um, you can see Virginia Woolf kind of putting the bookend on the other side of the narrative, right? Now they're going to go to the lighthouse. The answer is yes, they are going to go to the lighthouse. And in part three, um, the kids don't want to go. He forces them to go. He dominates them. And all the way out to the lighthouse, they're thinking horrible things about him in their mind. And you get to see the way that their relationships have um, worsened in Mrs. Ramsey's absence. Um, the son is still really resentful of the way that his father interacted with him when his mother was around. Um, he still remembers the, the sword falling at the beginning and cutting off the, the little um, thread that his mother was weaving, um, that thread of joy and possibility and hope when she said, Yes, tomorrow we will go to the lighthouse. And father said, No, we won't go to the lighthouse. <laughs> you should be a realist with this kid and not build his hopes up. Tell him the truth. He's not going to get to go. <laughs> and he still really resentfully hates his father. Um, kind of, kind of in a, um, it, it's an excessive response to something that was so mundane and. Yea, verily, even true. I mean, the weather was terrible. They couldn't go to the lighthouse, you know. But he's still looking that out 10 years later. Um, and you get to see the the relationships uh, and the way that they've been eroded by time through that middle section. But in part three, um, the lighthouse, they actually go to the lighthouse. And it, it almost reads um, with a religious Uh, kind of a feel to it. You see Mm -hmm. Mr. Ramsey going to the lighthouse to do the errands that Mrs. Ramsey wanted him to do. So the story comes full circle. And in that trip to the lighthouse, he's almost, um, it's almost a sacrifice, a a way to kind of make it right, to reorder the world the way that she had ordered it in some way. Um, Maybe an attempt at some sort of justification. Mm. And on the journey out to the lighthouse, um, while the kids are grumbling and mumbling and thinking horrible things about him in their minds, he is blithely reading a book. He's reading a book through most of the narrative, which I think would be really kind of fun to talk about all of the scenes in which the characters are reading. It makes me wonder what what in the world Virginia Woolf was saying about the purpose of literature or the reason we read. Um, That would be a fun conversation to have. But anyway, he's reading all the way out to the lighthouse. And um, you get to see inside the son's mind through this indirect narration, this resentment that his father has never praised him and this fear that he's going to do something wrong because he's in charge of the tiller of getting them there, right? Right. And, um, he's afraid the wind's going to change and then father's going to blame it on him. And he's father never says anything good to me. Father never tells me anything good. Right. But on the way out, his father looks up and he says, good job, James, you've done well. And so he gets this well done that he's always wanted. So when you, when you see when you're looking at the trip out to the lighthouse in book three, There are three different elements that I think are very religious in nature. One is the well done from the father to the son. The second is that when they, when they land there on the lighthouse, James says something to the effect of that the lighthouse um, looks different up close than he remembered it when he was a child. Uh, The quote says, "Um, so that was the lighthouse, was it? No. The other was also the lighthouse for nothing was simply one thing. Nothing was simply one thing. And so this idea of the shifting perspectives, the way things look different up close and far away, um, is worked into the theme of the lighthouse. And the lighthouse itself becomes a kind of symbol of this idea. So we've got this issue of the lighthouse um, being symbolically the picture of the shifting narratives, of the shifting perspectives. And then finally, we get the, the lighting or the landing of their little boat on the rock where the lighthouse sits. And the children are looking at their father, waiting for him to say something. But he never does say anything. He just sits up very straight, or stands up very straight and tall in the bow of the boat, as if he were saying, Virginia Woolf writes, there is no God, before he lightly leaps into space landing on the rock. And then in the final chapter, um, the people watching from the shoreline realize that they've made it. And they say the words it is finished. So three very religious, I think, allusions in that last chapter that sort of suggests that there's a sacrifice that's being made and received. And so it conjures up this image of the lighthouse that's somehow likened to God by Virginia Woolf. So the question of God, right, or an objective other that stands outside or in the distance in the world, but that orders things and establishes things that is a, a constant on the horizon. Um, you can see her asking questions about that, contemplating that, which makes all kinds of sense. Historically speaking, when we think about the work as an artifact of the time period, I think it fits right in with what Virginia Woolf and her contemporaries were thinking about, but yeah, are you guys following? Or yeah, am I just but rambling.
0: I have, no, no, not at all. The, the I was circling around to a question in my head uh, about the. Uh, I mean, because you're talking about the symbolism of various elements in the story. You talk a little bit about narrative style and even a little bit about subject matter and content. But I wonder if, given that this is a modernist novel, given the, the de emphasis of plot and of really of structure, that may be too strong, is there a, an underlying point is is virginia Woolf after something as a as a to get a philosophical discussion of some kind started is this a piece of art like that that we can um latch on to some way
1: well i think that she's basically entertaining the idea of whether or not an objective narrative is even possible in a human drama is oh, okay. there any kind of objective reality? Can we find a narrative thread that makes sense of the world around us? So it's
0: kind of meta. It's kind of meta. It is. The question is whether there's narrative. Yeah. whether. And so she presents it in a book without one.
1: Well, not exactly. I mean, in her treatment.
4: I was going to say, is that an answer to that question from her? That The fact that she asked the question in a book that apparently doesn't
0: have one? Or at least has one that you got to ferret out.
1: Well, I mean. It does, it is realism, right? So she's, she's picturing these mundane moments in kind of mundane, ordinary people's lives. And she's looking for some sort of thread that is woven through the fabric of their lives that would give their lives meaning because Mrs. Ramsey is, she's vibrant, she's alive, she's beautiful, and then she's just gone. And mm. why? Why? what's it for? What's it about? In fact, in the last, um, the last section, in part three, that's one of the questions that Lily Briscoe asks over and over again, as she calls Mrs. Ramsey, Mrs. Ramsey. She's crying out for Mrs. Ramsey, wondering, what is this all about? It, she even says at one point, what is the meaning of life? I mean, she's going for big game here, Virginia Woolf is. But I, th- I see her basically in her treatment, suggesting that the artists themselves are functioning as narrators, drawing a line that unites all of the disparate elements of the fragmented drama that is human life. And in this way, Mrs. Ramsey is a kind of domestic artist drawing these figurative lines by opening and shutting doors, as Lily Briscoe says. She's a woman who opens doors and shuts doors, and she moves people around and causes them to act in ways that, that they otherwise might have neglected to act. So as to create this kind of harmonious, unified, lovely picture of domesticity.
0: Is the suggestion there that though that life may not have any inherent meaning, the artist somehow comes along and imparts meaning to it?
1: Well, I think so. I mean, I I can see her at least asking the question of whether or not there's any inherent meaning and answering, I don't know if there's any um, objective reality, but it's the artist's job to locate some sort of a cohesive narrative through art bringing everything together so that people who observe it that is the the art and the beauty of it can have some sort of an intimate moment yeah that that's what i see her doing here and i think that that's borne out not only by the the works the work of Mrs. Ramsey, by what Mrs. Ramsey lives and does, but also by Lily Briscoe, because in that third part, she has an epiphany as she's creating this this painting. And she finally figures out how to make it balance, how to bring it together. She draws a line right in the middle, right in the middle that kind of unifies all the parts. And brings it together into a pleasing, beautiful story. And she finally understands, you see? So I don't know. I'm. She's at least saying that we can't get enough far enough outside of ourselves as individuals to see anything objective. The best that we can do is to see things from our perspective right. and try and draw a line.
0: So... Okay, so let's talk a little bit then about her, a little bit more about what it seems like Virginia Woolf's idea of art is in mm-hmm. To the Lighthouse. Because obviously we talk about that all the time. It's a, it's a favorite topic of ours here. And uh, maybe she's got an idea of art that is something we haven't really come across yet. I mean, based on what you've said, how would any of the other the rest of you characterize it? What, is she, what does she seem to be suggesting about the nature or purpose of art?
4: I don't know if I have an answer to that question. I might just have another question. All um, right, go ahead. So if, if what Lily is doing, I guess I'll put it this way. Is Lily, in her making of this painting, is that an attempt to give meaning to a world that is apparently meaningless from her perspective? Or is it an attempt to, by functioning in, in her role as a creator, uh, imitate what... Her, what this woman that she looks up to, this woman that she loves has managed to do in creating her own world and her own environment and participate in something that um, has meaning innately. Does that make sense?
1: Yeah, I, I see what you're asking. Um, I think I think it's more that she's looking at Mrs. Ramsey and learning, seeing in her life art, essentially. Right. She's comparing her mm-hmm. to an artist. And She's cons- she's remembering at one point, for example, a time that she was out at the beach with Mrs. Ramsey and another guy, Charles Tansley, that she didn't really get along with. And Mrs. Ramsey uh, kind of forces them to talk to each other and to play a game together that causes them to make up, and then everybody has a lovely time, and it's just kind of an idyllic little interlude by the ocean. And she's looking back at it. She says it was almost like a work of art, like a work of art, she repeated, looking back, uh, looking from her canvas to the drawing room steps and back again. She must rest for a moment, and resting, looking from one to the other vaguely, the old question which traversed the sky of the soul perpetually, the vast, the general question which was apt to particularize itself at such moments as these, when she realized faculties that had been on the strain stood over her, paused over her, darkened over her. What is the meaning of life? That was all, a simple question, one that tended to close in on one with years. The great revelation had never come. The great revelation perhaps never did come. Instead, there were little daily miracles, illuminations, matches struck unexpectedly in the dark. Here was one, this, that, okay, and the so other. Oh, just, just a minute. Just let me get to the end of this line because I think this is really going to answer your question. This, that, and the other, herself and Charles Tansley in the breaking wave, Mrs. Ramsey bringing them together, Mrs. Ramsey saying, life stand still here. Mrs. Ramsey making of the moment something permanent, as in another sphere, Lily herself tried to make of the moment something permanent. This was of the nature of a revelation. In the midst of chaos, there was shape. This eternal passing and flowing, she looked at the clouds going and the leaves shaking, was struck into stability. Life stands still here, Mrs. Ramsey said. Mrs. Ramsey, Mrs. Ramsey, she repeated. She owed it all to her. This is the, the epiphany I was talking about. And I really do think that that's what she is trying to communicate to us, that the role of the artist is. It's to say, life stand still here. And to create this thing that Robert Frost, who was another moder- modernist, a, a contemporary of Virginia Woolf, though an American artist, said, um, is a momentary stay against confusion, Right? Life stands still here. But
4: that confusion is the nature of things. Confusion right. is the
1: nature of things. Thus the
4: modernism. Because I could see a different way to 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 put it. I mean, when she's talking about these exor- the exercise of faculties, right? Mm-hmm. That's the way she puts art. Mm-hmm. This is the exercise of faculties. But then she talks about that very exercise being something that darkens over her. Yes. Right? That's, that's sort of um, terrible and Broody. antagonistic yes. in a way. Um, and so I guess my wonderment is if it's really... The exercise of faculties that delivers her and that causes this revelation or if instead what's happening is she's recognizing a facet of the world something that's innate to human existence rather than something that is thrust upon a world of confusion by human art because it and i haven't read the, the novel but just from your just from your articulation of it today she sees something that is um you could almost say something ultimately true about mrs ramsey's experience Uh and about the kind of thing that mrs ramsey is capable of in the world and the kind of the way that she sees the world and she believes in mrs ramsey and believes that what mrs ramsey sees is true and and you could almost hear that call at the end as her um, yearning to have that set of eyes for looking at the world rather than her trying to impress upon the world the same thing that mrs ramsey impressed upon the world oh i see what you're saying
2: from what i understand mrs you get inside mrs ramsey's head as well yes and she doesn't actually like she doesn't have inherent belief in the works of her hands that she also feels
1: that life is a confusion Mm -hmm. that she's beating up against Yes. In fact, there are moments when in the midst of her daily activities, the roar of the sea in the background gets louder and louder and everything goes silent and all that she hears is the roar and she looks up in terror. And Hmm. I think that Virginia Woolf is using that roar of the surf to suggest what comes in in book or chapter two or part two of the drama, the passage of time, that's always present, eroding everything, um, taking it apart, separating it, fragmenting it, right? Casting it about, um, destroying. Um, That's always present in her mind as a kind of terror that lies just below the surface and all of the ordering that she's doing staves that off even her relationships um, in particular her relationship with her husband what she needs from him is to be a bulwark against that terror always And what he needs from her is similar because he feels it not in the roar of the surf but in the fact that the the uh, books that he's been writing and publishing are already falling out of um, usage right? Mm. Already people aren't reading them anymore. And so he's looking at the passage of time as erasing him,
4: right? So is, is the role of the artist then back to the topic of art for a second, is the role of the artist then any real, anything real Oh or yes. is it some sort of a parlor trick?
1: No, no. Uh. As a matter of fact, I think that's the main idea that she's trying to, that's the flag she's trying to plant with this novel, mm. that this, um, the psychological terror that she shows us through Mrs. Ramsey and through Mr. Ramsey and, and some of the other characters in the story, um, that desire to be enough and the fear that they're not enough, the, the feelings of um, how transitory they are and how insignificant, that's real. That's the human condition from her mm-hmm. perspective. And art represents the only possibility of planting a flag in the midst of that chaos, ordering anything, um, having a moment, saying, life, stand still here, creating something that is permanent. Maybe the most permanent thing that we can create, according to Virginia Woolf, is art. Um, But she decides in the end, uh, after Lily Briscoe has this little epiphany that I read to you, she draws that line and finishes her own work of art. And she decides that it doesn't really matter if anybody but her ever even sees it, that it was her working the matter out on canvas and it was satisfying in and of itself that the creation of the art was in some way satisfying. It answered the question. It was an assertion of her personality and her perspective in the face of the surf in the background, the erosion Mm. of time, Um, and that that was kind of that and the sharing of beauty with another individual seemed to be the only little bits of hope that she offers as stays against the confusion that Frost talks about and that I think she is really on about in her story.
0: Virginia Woolf's novel is widely considered to be one of the best of the 20th century. She is given credit, and you can just pick a source and say, who are the greatest novels of the 20th century? She's in the top three to top five on every list. Why? Based on this, based on your reading, Missy, based on this quick pricey of the novel, why is that a an, a, a general consensus type conclusion from among those who love literature and read it and think about it?
1: Well, you're asking me?
0: Well, yeah, you and Megan, because you and Megan have both read this story, right, Megan?
1: You go ahead, Mama. I'll let you to take this Such one. Such a good Sounds answer, like softball for you. <laughs> okay, I'll see. I'll see if I can hit it. At least I'll give it a glancing blow. <laughs> um, again, this is my first experience with Virginia Woolf, so just one novel is probably not enough to penetrate why she remains one of the the biggest figures in modernist (laughs) literature. I don't know that that's that makes it worse for me. I also read Mrs. Dalloway. (laughs) Oh, you did? Well, you see, you're ahead of me then. So you really ought to have something to say. But I'll I'll just put in my two cents. And then you can kind of piggyback on me, Megan. Um, Okay, I think that her work with narration, the way that she took what Jane Austen began and developed it was brilliant. She was brilliant in her use of the narrative device. Um the the way she was able to characterize and study human relationship and the human psyche I I think it's unprecedented. I've never seen anything like it. Is it it Tolstoy-esque? A, yes. Yeah, I, she's kind of writing life in in oh. terms of realism here just like Tolstoy was. But then in addition in terms of her contribution to the development of the novel ah, that yes. we would cons- what we would consider the novel to be today. I see um, what she did is groundbreaking in her time period, and it has remained. It has remained and continues to influence the way the modern novel, the modern art novel, is written. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I yeah. see echoes of her work, this work in particular to the lighthouse. in, for example, um Marilyn Robinson's work and Paul Harding's work, just the narrative style, the mm. that non-direct narration, there's a real focus on, the interior landscape of the mind, the the thoughts of an individual and their perspective. You can see Marilyn Robinson deal with that in, in her, uh, her trilogy home and Lila and Gilead. Gilead. Yes. That Gilead was the first in that series. I should have said that one first, but anyway, I see her doing that playing with perspective there. And I see Paul Hardy, Paul Harding, who wrote Tinkers doing that in, in that novel as well. Um, I, I see the influence of Virginia Wolf in that particular, uh, genre, of literature.
0: Ian, you had another question, I think, related to what we were talking about.
4: Yeah, and I'm chewing on it because I'm not... There's a couple ways to phrase it. I I think it's a two-fold question. I think the first part of it is, does her novel accomplish what she understands art to be for?
1: That's a good Um, question.
4: And then the second one is, does it actually accomplish more than she thinks art is capable of accomplishing and therefore, kind of undermine itself a little bit.
1: You mean suggest words, an objective reality?
4: Yeah. <laughs> is she? Does she come along and say the world is like this, meaningless? And and are we then in a position of having to say, man, what a great stylist? This is as self contradictory as every modernist work ever written.
3: I don't know. I might be thinking at a less deep level, which would be embarrassing. But <laughs> <here's>, this is <laughs> this is a thing that I come away from all of the Virginia Woolf that I've read, I come away thinking she's done a great job of giving us tiny little moments and making time stand still for mm-hmm. an instant. Yes. The way that she talks about an everyday scene recalls everyday scenes that I've had in my life. and the So way it's that vibrant. I, it's super vibrant. Yeah. The way that you think back on your day, it isn't in a linear fashion sometimes. Yes. Sometimes it's just little snapshots that are really vibrant and were meaningful to you right then. And then you look back at your day and you think, I'm not sure what it was full of. You know, right. <laughs> not every day is really deep thematically, or I mean, even cohesive, linear or even
0: linear. Yeah, or co-
3: yeah, it doesn't necessarily cohere. No, but it doesn't mean that your day was meaningless.
1: You know, or that you won't come up with a narrative. That's the other thing that I think. I, I think that I don't know that this is that her perspective is true with the capital T, but it certainly resonates with human experience experientially. Okay, so right? that, yes. those are
4: both the answers to the first half of that question, which is great. Right. Um, does does her novel succeed in doing what she thinks art is for? So you guys would both say yes. Right. If uh, artist clearly, art is clearly making time stand still. Then then she pulls that off
1: in a sense. Yeah, I think that's true. That's fair. By
4: making that argument. Do you think she's stepping outside of her own ideas a little bit and and relying on a worldview? She's trying to knock down in order to do it. Well,
3: OK, I don't know if this goes with what you're asking, but do you mean to say that she's imposing some kind of of linear theme? on those little fragmented moments and in so giving the lie to her own theme. I
0: think that's what he's going for. Yeah, more or less. No, don't you
3: do that with a and day I'm... of your own though? You look back on your day
1: and you think, well, what held all these things together? And more than that, don't, don't you look back sure on a lifetime of moments like that? Because you, your life is composed of such moments. Don't you look mm-hmm. back and organize, pick and choose the moments of your life in order to organize your own narrative of what happened, the meaning of your life? Call it the media. Oh meaning yeah, of no, no,
4: you, that isn't the question I was asking. Of course I do, and I, I'm not trying to fault her for that at all. What I'm saying is, in making a categorical statement about what art is for, and and that statement being art is a mild bulwark against the confusion that life is really about. Mm-hmm. In even imposing that little piece of order, isn't she undermining her own argument?
1: Because she's saying there is some sort of objective truth, and and the truth is beauty. Well, beauty well is truth. What, truth beauty is it that? Yeah. What it's you basically
4: saying? said is that is that art is that Virginia Woolf's whole argument in this story is that art is valuable. Art is meaningful. Art is powerful. Mm-hmm. Art is effective. Yes. But in order to be effective, it's got to be effective against something. And if it's effective against something, and then that something is the truth of the world we have a contradiction on our hands and it doesn't mean it's not worth reading, but I, I just think those ideas are somewhat at odds with one. But
2: another. But I think, I think Ian, you're using, and I know you're doing this, just to make a point, but the language is really aggressive. Like she's trying to argue for a meaningless world. And I, from what mom has said, that's not the sense I get. The sense I get is the, that it is very uh, experiential. And she may or may not have been thinking about the reality of nature but what she's dealing with the human experience it's the psychological poem right Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and psychologically she's not wrong we go through our days and it does seem very chaotic and fragmented Mm -hmm. and so it sounds like her suggestion is that art allows us to pull the fragments together and whether or not Mm. that means there's any kind of objective reality
1: that's not really her game that's not what she's
2: after that's
4: not the conversation she wants to have
1: well, I don't know because there's that lighthouse that we talked about, um, yeah, I mean, symbolically that. standing in the background, and I I'm still thinking about well, and when he steps up, didn't you say that when he
4: steps off the boat onto the onto the lighthouse dock or something, it is the it is as though he's saying there is no God.
3: Yeah, yeah and right? he's stepping onto the rock. He's I mean, stepping on I think onto she the rock. rock significant a game like too, that a little bit.
1: Yeah, I I think she must be because this is the period uh, of history where people started jettisoning the idea of. Christianity of God. And, you know, before this, before World War I, um, there was more regard for uh, the idea of a cohesive linear narrative that God was putting together. But after World War I and all of the destruction, people were saying, yeah, maybe not. So I see her basically trying to figure out where God belongs in the landscape, Mm -hmm. if I can use that word, of her time period. So it's highly symbolic and I wish you guys would read it so we could talk again about the symbol of the lighthouse. But I see first, you know, you think about, okay, what's a lighthouse? All lighthouses, right. Exist to keep people, uh, sea voyagers, you know, sailors, whatever from crashing into the rocks. Uh, sea voyagers. Maybe. Yeah, that's right. Sea <laughs> voyagers. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, it it's, it's the fixed point. Right? It's distant, but it's solid, and it makes the whole world seem to stand still. She says, everything in the whole world seemed to stand still. The lighthouse became immovable, and the line of the distant shore became fixed. The sun grew hotter, and everyone seemed to come very close together and to feel each other's presence, which they'd almost forgotten. And uh, in other places in the story, the beams of the lighthouse are like probing and illuminating and comforting, depending on who's seeing them and how they perceive them. So this lighthouse is... It's obviously a symbol and it's some sort of a God symbol, whether it's, um, you know, I mean, when I already told you when when James gets there, he says it looks different up close, but that doesn't mean that the way I perceived before isn't real. That was real too. Just it's different. I perceive it differently now. You can kind of hear her trying to wrestle with this idea of um, what the lighthouse is, uh, what God is, who God is the idea that she had of god when she was a child compared to the new idea that she has of god because of her shifting perspective and um the the age the time that's passed and and the coming of age that's happened in her own life um this is this is i think what she's trying to do with that evocative symbol of the lighthouse, is pose the question of God and try and figure out a way to keep it, not jettison it entirely, but keep it and regard what came before that previous perspective with the new perspective that was dawning on the modernist temperament. It's kind of, from my perspective um, as a, a Christian woman, I look at it and I see what she's doing, I think. Uh, I think it's it's um, anemic. It's an anemic image in that regard. Mm. She drains all of the, the potential power of the lighthouse image out on the rock, right, when Mr. Mm. Ramsey jumps out um, like an atheist. The novel itself is very highly representative of the experience of the modernist in that particular period of history. But I think it remains because she manages to... Um, to articulate those ideas in such a way that they resonate, even though we live in a postmodern age.
4: It sounds like what you're saying is that despite the fact that we may not agree ultimately with her perspective on the world, she is an extremely effective novelist in that she's describing the human experience and that she she is pursuing a vision of art and doing it well that is demonstrably true. Art is good at making time stop. Art is for freezing moments and drawing meaning out of them mm. and whether or not we agree with the meaning she's drawing really isn't the point it, um we love talking about modernists around here at center for lit for that very reason they have a, an unusually light hand on the tiller when it comes to describing human nature um and that virginia wolf may be the best of them mm. right mm.
1: well i i agree with you i think she does a beautiful job of that i i disagree with her I think I see her asserting that the artist is actually in charge of creating a narrative that is creating meaning and that different individuals will have different meaning. Mm -hmm. So, I disagree with her well, and there's that about fundamental that fundamental
4: contradiction we're talking about. But she also can't help but be a a, a child of her own age that's, intellectually. That's
1: right. And I think that the the reason we still read this is not because it's a relic, um, historically speaking, of the the modernist period. Although it certainly does a beautiful job of articulating the the modernist mindset and their dilemmas, but because those questions that they were struggling against are questions that all human beings struggle against. And Mm. in some way, art truly is a gift um, that draws us together, that, um, that forces time to stand still, and the artist himself or herself really is allowing us to look through their eyes and contemplate the world from a fixed point in that sense. They're they're in large part, they're functioning as a lighthouse for us. You I don't know if that's essentially what the symbol of the lighthouse was. I, I don't know. I might be maybe I, maybe that's my image of the lighthouse instead of hers, but I, I think that certainly she would have agreed with me that that is one of the functions of good art.
0: Well, maybe we'd understand it better if we went and saw the movie.
1: I think we should all do that, and then we should talk again. (laughs) Look out for
3: geckos, ladies and gentlemen.
0: (laughs) Missy, thank you for uh, that enlightening, if I could use that word, uh, little... Probing. Yes, the probing, enlightening little summary of Virginia Woolf's great novel, To the Lighthouse, 1927, maybe the pinnacle of modernist literature. I don't know. I've heard it said. Um, real last question around the table before we adjourn. And I know that we've maybe kept you a little long in this episode of Bibliophiles, but perhaps we'll make Emily cut something out. So it goes down to the required time. But last question, will you, those of you who haven't read it recently, go back and reread based on this discussion, Ian, you first, yes or no?
4: I'm probably not. Not because it doesn't sound beautiful and stunning and wonderful, but because the list of books that I already need to get to is so impossibly long. And Virginia Wolf is on it at some point, but man, it will likely be years. Fair,
0: honest and fair. Emily.
3: Uh yeah, I'd love to.
0: Megan, reread.
3: Yeah, penance read. I'll
0: do it. <laughs> penance read. <laughs> I love it. Uh, I will tell you this. I actually we were talking about To the Lighthouse this last week because uh mom's reading it and we were just thinking about it. I actually called up the movie on YouTube, which is available for free. Oh, that's it was a, a real sign. blockbuster <laughs> and saw a few scenes, a young Kenneth branagh doing his thing as the uh the male lead, such as there is in that movie. And I thought, maybe I'll watch the movie first. Very atmospheric.
1: Yeah, I, I don't have high hopes for a movie rendition of this because too much is going on in the interior of people's minds and hearts to really demonstrate through film as a genre, I think.
3: I don't know, though. I wouldn't put it past old Kenneth. He could do it. Well, he <laughs> wasn't the director.
1: I can't remember who directed it. No, he it. was a kid. He was he like was, 21 He's was just a 22. really young actor. Yeah. Oh, never mind. He was playing the part of um, Charles Tansley, if you remember him.
0: Be that as it may, we appreciate you diving into it for us and sharing your thoughts. Thank you guys for your questions. Thank you, Bibliophiles listeners, for coming along for the ride. We'll be back before too long with another one. And until we meet again, my friends, happy reading.
1: Happy Happy reading. reading.
0: Bibliophiles is a production of the Center for Lit Podcast Network. Find new episodes each month on the web at centerforlit.com where you'll discover dozens of resources to equip and inspire you to participate in the great conversation, including the Pelican Society, a membership program for folks who love the Center for Lit approach to all things literary. Thanks for joining us. We hope you enjoyed today's episode. Until next time, happy reading, everyone.